Greetings. Let's join Fred Kuhn as he digs for solutions on this issue with our guest. Welcome, everybody. Our guest today is John Riches. I happen to have met John personally and have heard him speak twice, a very eloquent speaker and a really bright guy. He is also making a major contribution to our veterans through the Goldwater Institute. So let's back up. John is the Director of National Litigation for the Goldwater Institute's Sharf Norton Center for Constitutional Litigation. He's also the General Counsel for the Goldwater Institute. John has developed and authored a number of pieces of legislation, including the landmark Right to Earn a Living Act, and he also developed legislation eliminating deference to administrative agencies in Arizona. It's the first of its kind in regulatory reform and is being used as a model for the rest of the country. He's been quoted on Wall Street Journal, CBS This Morning, Bloomberg News, Politico. A little more, he uh, clerked for Senator John Kyle for the Senate, U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee, worked for the Rules Committee for the Arizona Senate, Office of the Council of the President of the White House, he also was appointed by the president to serve as a panel member of the Federal Service Impasses Panel. He is also an officer in the U.S. Navy Reserve and a native of Arizona. John, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much, Fred. Appreciate you having me on. I'm glad to have you on here. I think what you're doing is terrific. Let's start with the issue that I first was introduced to by you, and that is the state and local restrictions on employment opportunities for veterans. I hadn't even thought about the state and local governments restricting a veteran's right for employment. So start with the the importance of this and what's going on. You see it both nationally and in Arizona. That's right. So usually the way this comes into play is in the form of what's called an occupational license. And that is essentially a government permission slip for somebody to work in the job of his or her choosing. And these requirements, mostly at the state level, can apply to a whole range of professions. So ones that might naturally come to mind would be physicians or attorneys, other healthcare providers, things like that. But we live in a situation where in 1950, only about 5% of professions were licensed and they kind of fell into that group I just mentioned. Today, depending on what state you're in, about a quarter to a third of all jobs require an occupational license. And these, in some states, can range to things like florists or interior designers or people who want to shampoo hair. I remember you mentioning that in one of your speeches in Louisiana. It's, it's almost impossible to become a florist. Right. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah. In order to be a florist in Louisiana to sell flowers, you need to do both a written exam, which I understand is difficult. And then they have a subjective test where you have to arrange flowers and then people who are already licensed florists get to judge whether they're sufficiently beautiful or not in order for you to receive the permission to sell flowers in that state. So we have a situation where there's just a whole lot of things that are licensed that probably shouldn't be, which is one problem. And as part of that problem, that particularly affects our military members and their families who, as you know, are highly mobile. Military members get PCS orders every two to three years, which means both them and their spouses and their dependents are moving all the time. And if you have a working spouse, for example, who might 
be in a profession where a state requires a license, that means that every two or three years, he or she is going to have to go and get a brand new license, oftentimes replete with its own training and education requirements, whether or not that person has been safely practicing their profession for years and years and years crossing state lines means either unemployment or compliance with a whole range of what are oftentimes arbitrary government regulations. And arbitrary, right. Right. Before this piece of legislation that you helped get through, before this this came up, it was almost impossible to switch licenses, wasn't it? To change without going through all of these regulations and stuff? It really prevented employment for spouses, military, and, and veterans. Yeah, huge problem for both of those groups, veterans and military spouses. And the reason why is because each state is going to require its own set of criteria to get an occupational license. And some of these vary greatly. So, for example, the state of Florida requires auctioneers. It's kind of an obscure license, but license to be an auctioneer. They require $1,000 for a license application and then 19 days of training. That's kind of on the low end of the training requirements. But Hawaii, by contrast, also licenses auctioneers, but they only charge $15 and they don't have education requirements. Um, <laughs> so you could, and this, this exists across all sorts of professions. I just chose that one because it's highly unusual, <laughs> but it exists across all sorts of professions. Right. Well, the, the disparity between the two is really amazing. I mean, <laughs> right. So you have someone who might already be licensed and they're moving from, you know, Nevada and they're driving across the border to Arizona and all of a sudden they need to pay all these new fees, do all this new training, even if they're a fully competent professional, you know, they, they got to comply with the new state's regulatory regime, which, which really, really hurts our, our military members, our veterans and their spouses where it's just, it's really a stain on this country where you have a very, you know, we have great, robust employment across all categories of workers. Military spouses still have unemployment rates that range range in the neighborhood of 30%. I mean, which is just outrageous. It's unbelievable. I heard that the first time at the Institute's function that you and I attended, you were speaking at, and I was shocked by that number. Yeah, I mean, it's just really a, it's, it's really a tragedy. And oftentimes it's these state and sometimes local regulations that are causing that that number to uh, inch even higher. So the new legislation, the Right to uh, Earn a Living Act, tell us a little about that. Well, so there's there's two there's two big things that our organization has worked on in this area. So that's the Goldwater Institute. Um, the Goldwater Institute. The first is actually universal licensing. So what the state of Arizona did just this past legislative session was pass a law that said if you hold an occupational license in one state and you've safely practiced your profession for a year or more, there's no complaints filed against you in in your state, and then you move to Arizona and become a resident, Arizona is going to recognize the occupational license that you held elsewhere. So if you're a barber or a plumber in Colorado and you've been safely practicing your profession, you come to Arizona, Arizona is going to grant you a barber license or a plumber license without having to comply with any additional regulatory requirements of the state, which is a, a sea change in this area. And it particularly affects our military families who are coming to the state or on orders in the state and will now not have to comply with a whole range of other requirements they otherwise would have. What is the reception, John Riches, that you're getting from other states on this? What we're already seeing, and again, this is a pretty new initiative, but what we're already seeing is a lot of interest elsewhere, I think, 
governors and legislatures are looking at this and saying, well, look, I mean, we want to create as many employment opportunities as we can for our people. We don't want to discriminate against groups that are mobile, including the military and their families. And look, I mean, it just makes sense. You don't forget how to cut hair on a plane flight from Nevada to Phoenix. If you've been safely practicing your profession in one place, you can, you can safely practice it here. And I, th- I think a lot of states are seeing the, the common sense in that proposition. I'm sure there are a lot of questions. Like I remember the, one of the questions I asked you after the speech, what do you do about lawyers? What do you do about uh, people that have licenses like that, that are very specific, very technical? How is that mitigated in this legislation? There is a provision in the law that says that if the license requires familiarity with a state-specific regulatory or statutory regime, then the regulating body can still require familiarity with that, whether it's testing or education requirements. So that, that, would, that would apply, uh, obviously, to lawyers. Although lawyers are a little more complicated because they're regulated by the state Supreme Court rather than directly through statute. So it, it covers that, the issue you're describing. But look, I'm a lawyer. I practice in Arizona. That's where I hold my license. But I've done cases in Texas and New Jersey and Louisiana and many, many, many other places. And I don't forget how to be a lawyer just because I'm practicing somewhere else. Might have to get up to speed on uh, you know, rules of court different legal provisions that exist in different states. But honestly, that's not terribly difficult to do. And it it, it certainly doesn't require additional barriers to be put in the way of people that want to practice elsewhere. Let's switch gears a minute, John Riches, and talk about what can state and local governments do to make sure that veterans have as many employment opportunities as possible? What's the Goldwater Institute's position on this and yours as well? Sure. Lowering barriers like occupational licensing, I think, is a really, really big and important first step. I think also recognizing training that our military members have undergone in order to serve our country. So, for example, if somebody is a combat medic or if they're a hospital corpsman in the Navy and they've received a large degree of training requirements, have a lot of practical experience in being a medic, you know, if they, if they then want to leave the military and practice as, for example, an EMT or other healthcare professional in their state as a civilian, I think states should recognize the training and experience that they've received in the military. And that's another place, another place to look. And you're saying that that doesn't exist now? In many states, it doesn't. Some it does, some it doesn't, but it's, a, it's patchwork. Well, that certainly would be a big boon to uh, for those who are leaving service to be able to transfer some of the, they may not have all of the requirements for an EMT, but they have 90% of them. Those are, you're right. Those should be recognized and accepted or tested against or something. How would you do that? You know, you could, you could do it through state statute, which says, look, if there's education and training requirements that the Department of Defense requires that are substantially similar to what this state requires, this state will recognize those uh, training and experience requirements as applying to whatever criteria exist for an occupational license. And then, of course, boards and commissions, regulatory entities could have discretion in some of these cases to do that on their own. You know, you mentioned a a horrible statistic, up to 30% unemployment among military spouses. What's being done to address this, John? 
Well, uh, you know, the, the things that I mentioned that, that we're working on here, that's being done at the state level, you know, but I think there's also federal government's got to take a look at, at some of this stuff as well, making it easier for spouses in particular to find jobs on military installations or with the federal government, for example. But look at this, is not, this is not purely a government problem either. I think private employers should recognize the tremendous assets that these people bring to bear and provide opportunities for flexible employment uh, where that makes sense for their companies. I know. they. I, I've, I heard on the podium the folks who were talking about it, employers won't even interview them because they think they're going to be out of there in 18 months. So why should I invest time and training in this individual? I mean, it was a, a horrible concept. How do we overcome that? <laughs> I think part of this is cultural. You know, I think I think an employer's first reaction might be that, look, if someone's leaving, I don't want to go through the time and expense of training them. But we're also operating in a different paradigm where people today have more opportunities to work flexibly, to work remotely, to not need to, you know, be in an office from nine to five, you know, brick and mortar. And I think with this changing paradigm, employers are beginning to recognize that they can get very, very valuable employees that you know, even if they do have to move a lot, can still contribute enormously to a, a company's mission. So I think that that will naturally help solve the problem, just advances in technology in that regard. And then there's, I think there, there has to be a greater cultural recognition about the value that military spouses can bring to employers. I mean, these are oftentimes incredibly resilient people that have to uproot their family every two to three years and have to deal with tremendous change and have to deal with the fact that oftentimes it's only one of them at home because somebody might be overseas or, or uh, you know, elsewhere. And these people are accustomed to change. They're, they're accustomed to difficult life circumstances. And as a result, they're incredibly resilient, which can make for incredibly powerful employees as well. And uh, part of that is just going to be edu- education and letting our employers know that this resource exists for them. Folks, we have spent an exciting 15 minutes with John Riches. John is the uh, general counsel for the Goldwater Institute. And John, I thank you very much for spending time with us talking about this legislation that you helped get through Arizona and becomes a model for other states in the country to help our veterans. Thank you for what you're doing, John. I really appreciate the opportunity and thanks, uh, thanks for having me on. Thanks for joining us. If you wish to speak with Fred or you want a transcript of this interview, send an email to podcast at stuartcoopercoon.com. See you soon.